All right. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Kevin Griffin. I'm excited to hear uh, hear a little bit more about uh, about your story. Take it away, Kevin. Thanks, Thanks Jim. Thanks, Mark, for inviting me. I am in uh, Berkeley, California, where I reside, uh, where my life has led me <laughs> after a twist or two, turn and two. Uh, and I, I, I guess I was invited uh, because I'm a, a writer who writes about recovery and um, and the, the connection sort of started really connecting Buddhism and the 12 steps. And uh, I published a book in 2004 called One Breath at a Time. And then I've done kind of a series <laughs> on that topic. I keep spitting them out. One of them is about how to navigate the higher power idea. And there's one about uh, this kind of a workbook and a daily reflections book. And, um, and, you know, but that's somewhere that I arrived at after obviously a long journey. And, um, you know, I guess maybe to talk a little bit about my alcoholism and addiction, which I don't think I mentioned. I'm my name's Kevin, and I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've I've been sober now for thirty-seven years. I'll be thirty-eight in June. I don't count days, but it's fun to hear people count the days. Um, and it's it it's getting harder actually for me to to talk about the time before I got sober, um, and uh, partly because it just seems so far away. But I but I also think there is a way in which those wounds don't necessarily go away, you know. And and I don't I don't love thinking about. Um, things I did. Oh, that's interesting. You know, you'd think you'd get over it. What is it? There's a saying, I've heard it from Jack Cornfield. Uh, for, forgiveness is giving up any hope for a better past. <laughs> and so I, I guess I, I haven't completely forgiven myself, perhaps. I was... Uh, talking to my brother, my next older brother yesterday, because it was his daughter's birthday. And uh, and um, his daughter was 12. <laughs> uh, he, he became a father for the first time when he was 64. <laughs> uh, we have an unusual family. Um, but he, he taught me how to drink, Michael. And, um, and I started drinking when I was 16. And immediately, I drank alcoholically. Um, I dropped out of school soon after uh, because I was busy getting loaded and becoming a rock and roll star. And, um, and, and really my, my worst drinking <laughs> was probably in the first five or six years. I mean, in those days I would drink to, to black out and take drugs and, almost kill myself repeatedly 
Uh, and then I started to manage it all, <laughs> which is really dangerous, right? Uh, in my 20s, I, um, I only periodically blacked out or got sick. Uh, the rest of the time, it was all very much under control. Ha, ha, ha. And, you know, when I stayed high, uh, uh, marijuana was in a lot of ways my drug of choice. And I think it was not only my, in a way my drug of choice, but but the one that I took pride in. I didn't take pride in being an alcoholic, but I took pride in in smoking dope all the time because <laughs> it was like, cool or something. I don't know what the fuck it was. It was like, you know, I'm a hippie. So that's what I do. And I'm a rebel, you know, and, and I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, antisocial, or, I'm, you know, I'm a countercultural person or all these sort of delusions that one, uh, one carries in order to justify just staying loaded and not really doing anything with your life, you know, just, just, um, you know, living in a sort of fantasy. The fantasy for me was I'm going to be a rock star, you know, but never really doing anything about it. I mean, playing in bars for, you know, $15 a night wasn't exactly the path to uh, fame and fortune. Uh, you have to do more than that. But I will say that along with that, uh, <laughs> not so constructive, uh, delusional and addictive aspect of my life. There was also always a spiritual path of spiritual side to me. And, and I see that I, I, I started to realize, particularly when I started to teach and tell my story, that there were a lot of people a lot of recovering addicts had had something like that that they that you know we th we say i'm an alcoholic or i'm an addict and it's like it's supposed to define you maybe and and i think that maybe people you know who hear that assume that just means that's all you ever did but of course that's not something that's not all we ever did a lot of us had had other things going on in our lives and and one of them was often con some kind of a spiritual yearning and you know and there is uh, you know the the 12 step literature and other literature talks about how addiction is a sort of uh, is an expression like a misguided spiritual search and the you know the connection between the word spirits for alcohol and spirit for and spiritual is is the thing that people point to i mean and we even see in religious rituals you know <laughs> growing up catholic as certainly that uh, some of you presumably have you know that's right there in the middle of the mass is is wine um, and, and of course, nowadays, everybody thinks that, you know, ayahuasca is the way to God. Uh, good luck with that. Um, so, so there was this, how I view it now is that there was this tension, right? Between this part of me that wanted transcendence, wanted spiritual purpose and meaning in my life and wanted to be a, 
you know, a constructive and a good person, you know, to, to do something positive. And this part of me that couldn't is, is the easiest way to put it. Like it just couldn't, like couldn't deal, couldn't handle feelings, couldn't restrain my cravings, uh, couldn't uh, uh, limit my, uh, you know, acting out and selfish behavior. And, and a lot of that was around, uh, you know, relationships or, you know, if you want to call them relationships, you know, sexual acting out. So, so, you know, eventually before I got sober, I discovered Buddhism and, and I thought, oh, this is going to fix me. You know, it's going to take care of me because part of my story, a significant part of my story is that I was a depressive before I even started to drink at 16. I was already seeing a psychiatrist. I mean, uh, and treated for depression and um, at one point hospitalized when I was 18. So I thought, oh, I'll meditate, you know, and that'll take away my depression. And somehow it's going to fix everything and and um, I'll get enlightened, you know. Um, and, you know... There was a part of me that was very determined, you know, I mean, I did, I did some very intensive meditation retreats at that point, but they didn't fix me. And so I went off and I wound up like following a homeless guru, uh, which was truly delusion and, uh, and wound up homeless myself after I realized like I couldn't really hang with the homeless guru. And, and so three years before I got sober is when I really hit my bottom, which was living, you know, in a VW, I was sleeping in a VW bus. I wasn't living in it because my friend needed it for to go to work in the morning. So sleeping in a VW bus in Venice Beach, California, and, and uh, you know, trying to figure out what the fuck happened to me, what I was doing there. Uh, in any case, I dug myself out of that over the course of a few years and eventually you know, through the <laughs> prodding of others, I thought out of desperation, <laughs> which why else I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I went to an AA meeting, and it wasn't even so much going to an AA meeting, it was saying, you know, maybe if I stop drinking and getting loaded, um, maybe that'll fix me. You know, again, it was always about a fix, you know. Uh, I don't know if you can hear the dog, but she's, uh, the neighbor's dog is uh, barking. That's uh, Olive, for those who have not met her. Some of you have. And, but but something happened and it's still, uh, you know, and this is the one of the things that you hear so much in AA and and the, and the people take on as a kind of religious thing, which is like, how the hell did that happen? Like, how did I like turn that corner? And, and like one day, like, no, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm not smoking dope anymore. I'm not taking drugs. I've, it, it, you know, it was removed. The desire was removed. I woke up June 7th, 1985, and was like, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. And there was some, uh, some change that happened. I, I 
that for me, if there's a spiritual awakening, that was the biggest one because everything that's happened in my life, uh, everything good that's happened in my life in these years uh, came out of that moment. And um, so, you know, like a lot of people, I kind of went through this reconstructing of my life and, you know, went back to school, you know, as I said, I'd, I dropped out of high school, went back to school, discovered that I loved studying, discovered that I loved reading and I loved writing, which I had never done. I had written songs, but they were kind of like stoner songs. Um, And, uh, you know, became this different person who wasn't like cool anymore. You know, I had like a job and like got up in the morning and, and, uh, you know, try to behave in a moral way. And, and um, I started to feel happy, really, for the first time in my life. Like happy, not like in a good mood all the time, but happy like my life makes sense. <laughs> and it seems worth living. And I don't need any, I don't need to be fixed. So I guess, though, the, the thing that makes my story, you know, a little different is that, you know, I had this Buddhist background. And so when I got sober and there was like this 11 step where that you were supposed to meditate, I thought, Oh, okay, that's great. People, these people meditate. And then I found out like hardly anybody really did. And I was like, well, why, why is that? Like what's going on? And, and so eventually at like six or seven years sober, I started to really try to integrate my Buddhist practice with my 12 step work. And and figure out how to make that make sense. And that, that took a long time to do that in a way. I mean, in a way, it was, uh, I mean, it, I was kind of contradict myself. In a way, it was like, oh, sure, why not? Of course, uh, those can go together. But in terms of actually the details of that, <laughs> Like, well, what, well, how do you work this step with Buddhism? That took a long time. And, um, and, and before that happened, I was invited into a teacher training. So I, uh, as a meditation teacher, and so I was starting to take this role as a teacher. And then as soon as I started teaching, like recovery stuff started to come out of my mouth and I was embarrassed actually, you know, um, I thought that all the Buddhists in Berkeley would be horrified by the idea of a of somebody, an addict, uh, talking about recovery um, in their Buddhist group. <laughs> but actually, it turned out there were a bunch of sober people hanging out who, uh, you know, undercover, right, in the Buddhist world, and they, and they started to encourage me to talk more about it. So. Um, you know, and so there was my path, you know, and, and it's just so interesting because all these things that seemed disconnected and, and just seemed like random things that happened in my life kind of all merged at this moment in time. In 2003, you know, I got laid off from a job and got unemployment and my wife said, uh, why don't you consider it a sabbatical and start to write your book? 
about Buddhism and the 12 steps. And so I had, in in having gone back to school, I had started writing and had tried to write fiction. I had got a, a master's in creative writing. So I had that muscle, that somewhat of a skill there. I had been practicing Buddhist meditation then for over 20 years. I'd been sober for a decade and a half, more than that, 18 years. And um, I started to write. And it it all seemed to be there. And that was really, really uh, fun, actually. <laughs> you know, people talk about, oh, it's so hard to write a book. I, I love writing. I mean, it's not always good. <laughs> you know, I'll just spit it out, you know. Uh, I always say it's just like picking up a guitar. I don't like get guitar block when I pick up my guitar. I just play and writing is mostly the same. Sometimes I get stuck, but, but there was this joyful thing of writing. And then, and, you know, whereas many of other ambitious things I had done in my life, in the music world and writing and writing novels that never got published I would keep hitting walls and, and you know, the world just didn't want me to be those things. This idea and this book immediately found an agent and immediately found a publisher and immediately started to sell. And I was like, what people like that people are interested because I kind of wrote it for myself. You know, I, I didn't really think, Oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to become a Buddhist recovery author and I'll be famous and talk to people in Ireland. You know, I, I was like, it wasn't in my mind, you know, which is good, right? You know, because a lot of other things, you know, being a rock, when I was a kid and I wanted to be a rock star, there was a lot of ego behind that. I, I just, it, it, it's never seemed like really the cool thing to be like, I'll be a Buddhist recovery author. Like, who gives a shit? Like, that's just like not particularly sexy. But I'm too old to be sexy anymore anyway. So why bother? Um, so so there you go. I mean, that's kind of the story. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years because once that book came out, people started to bother me and tell me they wanted me to come around and teach them something. You know, and I'm working on a book right now. It's not a recovery book. It's a Buddhist book. And it's really the deepest dive into meditation that I've written. And it's really humbling. It's really humbling to um, to look at the Buddhist teachings and try to um, talk about them, and and then realize how much you don't understand. You know. Um, but, uh, you know, I was speaking to one of my uh, teachers last summer. I was in England visiting a monastery where he's the abbot. And I told him about what I was writing. And I said, I, I really don't know if I should try to publish this book. You know, it's really, it's just really a struggle trying to talk about these things. And he said, that's what people like about you is that you expose your struggle. And um, so I guess I have to do that. And and that's what I like about this world of recovery, that we expose our struggle. You know, 
it was it was the attempt to not let anybody see how fucked up I was that was so painful. When I was able to go to a meeting and say, I'm an alcoholic, and, and I, it just, I find that freeing, you know? Uh, and, and it's interesting because I know a lot of people, and particularly, you know, people who don't want to get sober or don't want to deal with it, like, oh, you know, I don't want to put myself in that box or I, I don't want to uh, label myself and, and um, fair, you know, fair enough. I, I can understand why you'd say that, but it's not how it works for me. That was the thing that let me break out of my box. You know, I was I was trapped in my own box of ego and and fear and self-protection and, you know, um, needing to feel as if I don't know. I didn't feel as if I had it together, but like I couldn't let anybody else know or whatever it was. I don't know. Uh, it, it's it's confusing to understand, you know, why why we do what we do. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I was in a band a long time ago with that Nigerian uh, sax and conga player, and he he wrote beautiful songs one of his songs was called shabadu day <laughs> which is like, and there's a line in it that just was like why do we do what we do how do we do what we do and he doesn't try to answer it uh, he just says shabadu day <laughs> it's like okay that explains it <laughs> why do we do what we do shabadu day and yeah um so but I think I feel like being sober, clean and sober, I do know why I do things, you know, and that's, it's a lot better than not knowing why the hell I'm doing things. So I guess I'll um, just share a little bit of um, what I'm doing currently if people are interested, I, um, you can just, if you want, if you're interested in what I do and my books or my teaching, um, I have a website and, uh, you know, I'm not here to market myself, but, um, you know, I know that people might be interested. So if you are interested, I will put my website in the chat. Oh, can I, can you enable the chat for me there, Jim? Um, or you can just put my website in the chat. All right, great. Thank you. Um, and I do regular Zoom classes where I guide meditation uh, for 20 minutes and then give a little talk. And I do that every Tuesday morning. It's 10 a.m. in Berkeley. So uh, after Pacific time, and then in the evenings on Fridays, 7 p.m. And those are just drop in. You can come, you can donate if you want. You don't have to. And um, and I do lots of other things. I travel and teach, and hopefully I'm going to be in Ireland later this year. I was there last summer, gave a workshop for the Mindfulness Teachers Association of Ireland. <laughs> And uh, so 
so yeah, so come around, come and visit me, come hang out. Uh, a couple of my friends who are regulars are are here today, and uh, we've been having a nice time these last few years. Zoom has been a lifesaver. Um, and uh, I think that's I think that's going to be it for now. Uh, and uh, Jim said maybe we could just, if people were interested, they could ask questions. Um, if people aren't interested, then you can do whatever you want to do. Talk about whatever you want to do. I don't want to. But uh, but yeah, I mean, if people are interested in meditation or uh, or what I do or any connections like how I do it, I'm happy to happy to respond to any questions. Perfect. Thank you, Kevin. That was great. We'll um, uh, we'll we use the raise hand features here. We're going to leave the recording going for the questions if or comments. And if you do not want to be recorded, the chat's back open. You can always put questions in the chat and I can ask them. Um, I had a quick one, uh, Kevin. I was curious um, if if the process of writing that first book, you know, how it affected or might have changed both your either your Buddhism practice or your your recovery or both if if it uh in fact yeah. that process was was um enlightening in any way yeah that's a great question jimmy so i i write as a creative exercise so i don't go into any writing project with a sense that i'm just like downloading everything that's all in my head it's it's more like what what's in my heart and what's in my head and my heart that i can share what can i discover so so um it was quite remarkable for me writing that book because i learned a lot <laughs> there was a there were a lot of things i had not really thought through because i hadn't had to you know like and and so each time i came to one of those 12 steps i would ask myself well what does this mean and how can i connect buddhism to this and 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 i wanted to bring out a lot of kind of core Buddhist teachings, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, and various lists and sort of ideas. And I wanted to integrate them in. And so I was always kind of trying to navigate, well, where does this list fit into the steps? And then what, you know, how can I uh, help help people to understand what this step means? Because my, I was trying to bring together i was trying to make it so that somebody in recovery who didn't know about buddhism could learn about buddhism and uh, find and if especially if they had trouble with god that they could kind of find a way to work the steps using buddhist principles but i was also trying to talk to buddhists and say see how these 12 step ideas actually like fit with buddhism and actually can help help buddhism like uh, it's not a one-way street for me. Uh, that's, uh, you know, and most people think it is, you know, that I'm, oh, I'm just trying to get the 12-step people to, to understand Buddhism or to connect with that. But I think there's a lot of people who are not even necessarily addicts who could really benefit, who, who have a Buddhist practice, but who could benefit from principles of recovery that aren't, that are implied in Buddhism, but aren't necessarily you know, 
fully integrated into particularly into into western buddhism so it was a it was a real adventure and discovery process as it continues to be i mean i, I writing one book didn't end my process you know it's it's a continual one of discovery for me but thanks <laughs> awesome thank you sarah please come on in oh, let me make sure you can unmute um you should be able to unmute now Okay, thank you. Virtual intervention, I guess. All right. Um, I just uh, very briefly wanted to say that um, I have been sober for a hundred and I'm counting a hundred and twelve days now. Although it uh, is my second experience at the event, first time I lacked the spirituality, and the second time I found my spirituality, which is why it's a brand new start for me. Um. Kevin, I must say, I've heard a lot of, I've been to Zoom meetings every day, sometimes two meetings a day, like I had a previous one before this one. But I must say, so far, yours was the most powerful share I have ever heard. And mostly, what, what your humility, you're a very, very humble person, you know, and um, that's very refreshing. Very refreshing. It's very refreshing. So kudos to you. I, I've been a teacher for 33 years, so I can relate to that. I have just currently, um, I suffer from CPTSD, which is complex, CPTSD, and I'm tackling my um, trauma um, stemming from my childhood. I'm 57 years old, and I'm working with that. And my sponsor, who's from Florida, fantastic woman. Um, but I recently decided one great change I decided, change the things we can, is to stop teaching. That's it. I've had enough of this. And I have all the support of my husband. I have all the support of my husband. We're now a little bit on a tighter budget, obviously, because there is one pay less, but come take care of that. I mean, I'm praying hard and this is one thing um, I find most difficult as I go along is to trust my God as I know him, my higher power, 100%. Um, I mean, we are such control freaks. We're such control freaks. And it's so difficult to say, you know, um, let go and let God trust my higher power, 100%, totally relinquishing control of any situation. I mean, one of the prayers, third step prayer, I think, um, take it easy and relax. So my, my partner, he's an atheist, my husband, he's from Australia, and he's utterly astonished. He was having a little bit of a panic attack at the airport. He did he travels with and all this, holiday. Anyway, I was in Schuster and budget, but anyway. And he got into a bit of a panic at the airport coming back. Um, because when we went into the airport, Catania Airport, he couldn't access Wi-Fi. He had to access Wi-Fi on his phone because the boarding passes were on his phone. And he was um, running around like a headless chicken trying to sort that out. And then he came to the cafeteria downstairs and he found me, you know, relaxed at the um, coffee table, bar table. I was having, uh, this is eight o'clock in the morning, please note. I was having a Sicilian, a typical Sicilian canolo 
a sweet with a cappuccino. And he just stopped dead in his tracks. And he said, what the fuck, woman? He said, you know, what you have to do for me is, he says to me, relax and take it easy. Leave it all in my hands. Sure enough, five minutes later, we got his internet and we bought and we checked it. We 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 put one you know the um scanner code on the whatever on the mobile and we boarded the police. So anyway, I think I've taken up um more than enough time. Time for other people to speak. I hope something of what I said is useful, Kevin. I will follow up your book one breath at a time. And uh, I put down a note of your website, and I'm inspired. Seriously, I'm inspired. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Pearl, please come on in. Good to see you. Thanks very much, um, and thank you, Kevin. It was great listening to you, and and um, as I mentioned there, the the. Um, the rawness of a day at a time, you know, it is there all the time, you know, and uh, like yourself, I have a good bit of mileage around and I have, I suppose when I, one of the things you mentioned about, you know, the hippie days and being cool and, and doing, I wish I'd stayed with it. <laughs> um, but the alcohol was always the one drug of choice, you know, but I got a lot into a lot less difficulty when I was when I was you know it was cooler to be doing doing the more hippie side of it and the smokes mm. and than what the alcohol brought you know the alcohol just took me to my knees time yeah. and time again yeah. and um, but uh, the journey you know into spirituality and into I went to TM. And like yourself, I was very troubled all the way down to schools and all that stuff, you know. But I went to TM at once before I stopped drinking, you know, because I had a hunger in my soul and I knew it like I had an emptiness in me that I knew nothing and a material ever could fill, you know. And that's what I felt from you, you know, it was just that that thirst for what, like, you know, and. I saw somebody describe it as hide and seek. You know, you might get a glimpse of something and then it's gone again, you know, but you just knew there was something there. And, and even as a child, I knew there was something there, you know. And um, you just woke it up in me, you know. Um, there was a storybook. Um, I discovered there was no Santi because I found this storybook um, when I was a child. And it was a child... Uh, an angel polishing a star. <laughs> mm. I'd forgotten completely about it. And what did I want to do? I wanted to polish my star and for the star to be the one. <laughs> but I was never good enough. Mm. And then it turned out for some reason, none of the other stars could turn up. <laughs> and mine was chosen at the end of the day, you know. And I'm a bit like that all the time. Mm. I'm... Um, I'm a serious astrologer um, in Vedic astrology. Mm -hmm. um, and I suppose Hindu would be more if I was to, you know, because mm -hmm. of the, the, um, the language of it. But, you know, I go to any and all, you know, um, 
sources now. I'm not secular, you know, I'm not, I know I'm not, like my heart is totally in the concept of divinity, you know. But I just came, I'm, my current passion is uh, to get in touch with Irish wisdom mm. and the depth of it that's there. And just something I came across very recently is, um, now I've known about it, but never put joined the dots. One of the names for Ireland is the Emerald Isle. I don't know if you've ever heard. Sure, of course. But there's an Emerald Tablet. Ah. No. <laughs> Interesting. And nobody has claimed it yet, you know, whether it is Egyptian or Greek or, you know, they've all, they all know of it. Hermes and well, they all know of this energy, but I reckon we're the closest to having a claim <laughs> going back the way, you know, because yeah. there is some amazing, and even a hundred years ago in Ireland, there were people who were, you know, the Theosophical Society and Helena Vasquez very much involved in the Buddhist community. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were, um, so their writings and writings from that time are very rich as well, you know. So if yeah. you do come to Ireland, I'd love to meet you. Um, All right. I live in Galway. I don't know where you're where you're coming. But yeah, we we were, we spent two weeks in Galway last summer. Oh, yeah. did you? Yeah. Because my son is actually teaching the Buddhism now as well. He's well, his mindfulness. Oh yeah. Um, with the company that he's working with. Oh, very and, good. Yeah. And um, so maybe you met him. <laughs> Don't know, yeah. but but anyway, yeah, I'd be delighted to meet you if you if you do yeah. come this way, um, and Lovely. we can have a chat. You Love know. to, yeah. But the the recovery journey is is just amazing. And I'd say for like there's quite a few people here, and I don't mean to go on, but like more gets revealed. That's promised, you know. Yeah. And it's not like we arrive someplace. As I say, it's like a game of hide and seek. Now you see it, now you don't. Right. You know, today it's there and then tomorrow it's gone or a half yeah. an hour later it's gone or, you know, something happens. But it's wonderful, you know, to hear it, you know, and to see and what you've done and, you know, all the writing. I've done a lot of writing myself as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, thank you. It's a pleasure. pleasure. Thanks. Thanks Mark for told me I'd like this one. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. An astrologer told me when I was, uh, let's see, I was about 31, 30, that I was going to be a writer. And it was like a thorough chart, you know, in the traditional astrology. And I was like, well, I'm a, I'm a songwriter. And she was like, no, no, not a songwriter. You're going to be. A, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a good map. It's a useful map. It's not yeah. the beyond the end of, but it's it's yeah, useful. It's not really, uh, uh, yeah, the predicting part of it isn't really the most useful part. Uh, to me, it's the more the kind of framing personality and understanding the the nuances and, and sort of contradictions in ourselves. Yeah, yeah the self-examination of the 11th step is what I would yeah. equate it with, you know, it asks for that. It, we need to do that. And yep. the step one, you know, the step, because, you know, the step one is primary. 
if you have no appreciation of yourself, then nothing else can work. So we have to take the first. That's and, for sure. You know, yep. uh, everything else is a bonus. So yep. thank you. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Yeah, love to meet you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Monica. Hi, good to see you. Come on in. Good to see you. I'll be at next Tuesday's meeting in Santa Rosa. Good evening or good day, everybody. Monica, alcoholic and spiritual fence sitter. Glad to be here. Thanks for helping keep me sober today. This is an amazing thing. As soon as I heard that our speaker, our guest speaker was going to be doing the meeting tonight, I was so pleased. My story is my my current sobriety date is Cinco de Mayo 2021. Did that on purpose so I can remember the special day and drink irresponsibly with non-alcoholic beverages. But nonetheless, uh, my story is I've been in and out of the rooms of AA since 2007, starting where I lived in Tucson, Arizona. And I did my first 90 meetings in 90 days, white knuckled it had to be on psychiatric medications, trying to get my mental act together. But in 2008, I went back to my same home group that I became frustrated with. And there was a young, crazy paramedic in our group at that time. And he and I used to have parking lot discussions or the meetings after the meetings that we referred to, at least in America. But anyway, nonetheless, he gave me your book and I completely read the book in 2008. Long story short, I ended up finally trying to get my shit together or my act together, excuse my French, in uh, 2021. And one of the key things was we were blessed with this damn pandemic. I'm saying that ironically because it created the forum of Zoom meetings and allowed me to look into secular AA. And that's one of the most important parts of my recovery journey today and helping keep me sober. But I practice recovery Dharma. I read from the book, Recovery Dharma. And I truly do feel as an agnostic by nature that if I was gonna practice any type of religious affiliation, it would be Buddhism. And so I just encourage everybody here, if you can, and you want to have Recovery Dharma be part of your journey, it's well worth it. And if nothing else, you'll learn how to breathe, and you'll learn how to meditate, and you'll learn how to have a much better life. Thanks for letting me share today. Thank you. Thanks, Monica. Joe, hey, good to see you. Come on in. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for hosting today. Kevin, thanks for being here and uh, speaking to our group today. I appreciate it. Um, I, uh, I got, I've been sober just a little over 15 years, and I, too, uh, uh, I took my refuge vows into Buddhism in 99, thinking that would, I'd be able to make sense of everything. And ironically, <laughs> I discovered that if I slept in a later, an hour later and skip meditation, then I could drink more the night before. So my mm-hmm. meditation really took a backseat <laughs> for a few years there until I uh, got sober some years later. Um, and then in 2012, I took my uh, Bodhisattva vows. Um, but anyways, my question um, to you is, I was wondering if you could briefly discuss um, 
you know, steps two and three from your perspective. <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> well, I mean, no, no, I'm happy to. I'm happy to. I, I'm just laughing because I, I wrote a book. I, on that yeah. basically so and I, I read your book i did but i don't have it memorized and i just thought to hear yeah, i know i know from you would be uh, yeah. fascinating Thank yeah you. so i mean in a way i li- i like to just even remove the god idea from the steps at least for a moment to see if if there's another way of viewing them as a process that doesn't involve some, you know, external power. So if I do that, step two is about believing or trusting in two things, that there is a way to recover that it's that it's a realistic goal and believing that i'm capable of doing it because if i don't believe those two things then i'm not even going to be able to engage in the process if i think oh you can't there's no way or i don't or you know this program i don't believe in this program or that program you know this is one of the things people will be like well you know Oh, that doesn't work. Well, this doesn't work. Well, this doesn't work, right? Just pointing at all the external things. Well, it doesn't work. Then then nothing's going to happen if I don't believe that there's a process. And then if I don't believe I can do it, because I might say, oh, yeah, that works for some people, but it won't work for me. So I have to believe that I can do it, and I have to believe that there is a way. And that's true of Buddhism as well, right? Because if you... If you don't believe in the path of Buddhism, you're not going to engage it. You might, or you might believe that Buddhism is a great path, but that you can't meditate. I've had people say, oh, I can't meditate. You know, okay, fine. Then you won't (laughs) if you believe that, right? So we can see how belief, and traditionally that's sometimes called faith, but in Buddhism, we don't really think of it as faith. It's more like trust or confidence. The dog is really on a roll this, this morning. Anyway, and which I find annoying, just to let you know. Uh, as a Buddhist, I can still get annoyed. <laughs> so the third step then is the beginning of the engagement in that path. Deciding to step out of my own, you know, uh, uh, desire-driven, ego-driven uh view and motivation in life so so wh- why am i doing thing what you know why why do i do something well typically i do something because i want to do it right so that's ego that's grasping right that's craving which we know in buddhist teachings those are all the things that cause suffering if you're acting out of grasping you're creating suffering for yourself so the step three is saying, don't do things based on self, on ego, on grasping. Try to be led by some higher principles, or, or let's put it not even higher. I don't even really like higher, wiser principles. So Buddhism gives me a 
model for that, a path for that, the Eightfold Path. When I turn my will and my life over, what I'm doing is I'm saying that instead of letting my will or my intention be driven by grasping and ego gratification, seeking ego satisfaction, I'm going to try to be led and guided by these principles, and I'm going to try to then act on them. So my will is my intention in Buddhist terms, like what's the motivation and my life is the actions that I take. So this is the the engagement in the path that happens here. That engagement traditionally takes has three levels: the level of of ethical, behavioral engagement, which is the foundation of recovery. It's what we mostly deal with in recovery. Then the level of the mental engagement, the meditative engagement, the the mental purification, the observing the mind, letting go of the negative energy. Negative, I don't love that term either. Letting go of the unwholesome, (laughs) cultivating the wholesome. And then the insight, the wisdom, being guided by the wisdom of the Dharma and and the teachings and the wisdom that comes out of our own hearts as we cultivate these qualities, as we live an ethical, uh, you know, um, morally based life and one that's uh, founded in, in awareness. So that's my shorthand for steps two and three. Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for that, Kevin. That was great. I mean, that's that's a whole lot. So it's good that it's recorded because if somebody wanted, like was starting from nowhere and didn't know anything about this, they might want to listen to that part for about 10 times to figure out what the hell I was saying. <laughs> I have a quick follow-up question to that, that, that it may be splitting hairs, but um, do you think that you're turning your life and your will over to to these principles or that you're directing your thinking and action towards these principles. Maybe they're the same thing. I I don't really know, but um, there's that phrase that's often used that uh, my, my, my best thinking got me here that I, I sort of personally think of it as my worst thinking got me here. My best thinking was deciding to come here and do something about about my life and the way I've been acting and, and, and sort of, sort of in that way of thinking, I might be getting hung up on it, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about, about that, if that makes any sense. So I'm not sure the first way you phrased that, I thought you were asking about uh, free will kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yes. Which is, um, Always a challenging question, and one that philosophers have spent a lot of time on. <laughs> and I'm not a philosopher at all. Uh, because you can make an argument based on spiritual principles that we don't have free will. However, the core principle of Buddhist practice is that we create our own karma. <laughs> through our thoughts, words, and actions. So, you know, but but because everything is conditioned, you can make this argument that, well, those thoughts, words, and actions are all conditioned, so they're 
it's not really free. I find that an unproductive exercise in analyzing it because, well, it it doesn't solve anything. I'm I'm interested in solutions. So what what I can see is that whether whether I'm it's conditioned or not in this moment. I'm having a thought, I'm saying something, I'm doing something, and those things right now are going to are the only you know what I do with those things is the are the only things that I can do to influence my life going forward. And being responsible in the present moment and doing my best to act wisely, wholesomely, skillfully in this moment to think wisely, to speak wisely. That's the most important thing I can do. Whether I'm making a choice or whether it's just all conditions unfolding, I don't know. But it sure feels as if I'm making a choice. <laughs> and 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 pretty clearly, there have been moments in my life and in each of our lives where we've thought something and done something that then had huge repercussions. And so I I don't know if that's at all answering your question. Uh, That was perfect. That was great. I I enjoyed hearing that. Thank you. I'm going to listen to it again. (laughs) Okay. Uh, There's more hands. Angie, please come on in. Hi, thanks for the meeting and thanks, Kevin. I really loved that. I've I read your book um, and I I understood what you said about pain in it, but is there any further reading you'd recommend for chronic pain and Buddhism? Ooh, wow. Um, trying to think of who the there's a Zen teacher. Um, it's more about death (laughs) than pain. There's a lot about death in the Buddhist world, but chronic pain is such a tough one, Angie, because, you know, that there are Buddhist teachers who will just say, oh, just be mindful of it. And that doesn't really work in the same way for you know with chronic pain as it does with episodic pain and so so uh, it's not frank uh, not I'm, i i wish i could think of this author's name uh i'll look up one person i'm thinking of frank ostaseski he has a book yeah i guess it's about death, but I, I, you know, I've got to believe that if it's if he's writing about death, he's already also writing about pain. I don't know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in the chat. This is called the the five initiations. Or, I'm sorry, five invitations. <laughs> I haven't read it, but I've heard great things about it. Um, he's a Zen teacher, and um, so you know. It you know it might be it might be helpful. But I'm sorry I can't be more uh, 
more helpful than that because um yeah i mean the thing about see with episodic pain a buddhist teacher will typically say you know be mindful of the sensation and let go of your aversion to it and then work with it like make your mind spacious and allow the pain to come and go and see how it's impermanent but when something's really chronic and stays with you focusing on it can can be counterproductive as you probably know and so so we have to find ways i think to protect ourselves from the pain without obviously becoming addicted to drugs and and you know that's that's i think a very uh delicate dance that that requires us to at times turn to the sensation be with it breathe with it try to let go of our version but then to turn away from it and to i mean i think what in the what's hardest about chronic pain is not the pain itself but what it does to our mind and how it wears us down and 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 uh becomes frustrating and depressing and irrit and triggers irritation and irritability that comes with it so all of that winds up being the real struggle uh so um uh, you know i do think that meditation can be helpful but sometimes just sitting in meditation can be you know can can bring up the pain more and so it can be better to do something like a qigong or some kind of gentle movement to work with it so that's about the best i can offer angie that's brilliant thanks kevin oh, I'm, i'm glad somebody put did put something in the uh in the chat that you might look at video mala birch developed mindfulness based approach to chronic pain so there you go uh mark hi now i'm calling on people jimmy <laughs> that's great man um, don't worry jim is good uh kevin thank you for coming today man uh, maybe next time you're on ireland me you and carlos facing golf or something but i was just curious to know in your opinion which like has online helped you more than in person can you hear me okay yeah yeah i heard you yeah and has this like Oh, sorry, that, that was the question. So, uh, has it helped me in what in what sense? In your recovery, do you think that um, you wouldn't have done Zoom if it wasn't for like the likes of COVID, or were you doing online meetings anyway? Um, I definitely would not have done it. I I was doing some teaching through a. Uh, I was part of a teacher training program where I was mentoring people, so I knew about Zoom. I was using Zoom. but i mean i was saying this to someone the other day you know we we used to think that doing something online was kind of kind of lame like like not real teaching you know and not re- not a real class is like a shortcut but now we realize that it opens up the community and and re- allows us to reach people all over the world and so I find that hugely helpful and for myself 
it it also allows me to to not have to get on a plane or get in the car all the time. And so I appreciate all that. But nonetheless, it's not, you know, as as rich an experience to to be online as it is to be in a room with people. There's nothing like that, you know, that we definitely lose something in terms of our human connection when it's just online. So I, I'm, I'm really grateful that we had Zoom because if, if the pandemic had happened 10 years ago, we would have been so much more isolated and it would have been just really, it's, it's frightening to even imagine what it would have been like, especially for people in recovery, but for Buddhist communities and many communities, obviously, and businesses, everything. I mean, it just, so as much as we all complain about Zoom, uh, it's it's saved the world, really, you know, in a way, like no technology has ever saved the world, you know. So, so there you go. That's what I think. What do you think? Uh, I think it's helped me a lot. Yeah, I, I, can, I can be at a meeting anywhere. Like right now, am I in your house? Or are you in my house? Are we in Jim's house? Uh, with the recordings as well, Kevin. Like we can listen back. Um, yeah, I just want to say thanks for coming today and thank you for answering my questions. So. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Hopefully we'll meet soon. Jeff. Yes. My name is Jeb, grateful recovered addict, alcoholic, still on the path of recovery uh, one day at a time. And Kevin, thank you so much for sharing yourself, your story today. And, you know, it's a wonderful example of experience, strength, and hope coming out in a uh, self-disclosure of what has worked for one person and for many others. And I appreciate that. And one of the things I'm grateful for is that you seem to have done a, a good job of connecting dots between different spiritual pro, pro, uh, processes. Um, and, uh, well, um, <laughs> I don't want to say religions because I don't consider the, the Buddhism that I'm familiar with is not a religion. It's a way of mm -hmm. life. Path of yeah. life. And that's precisely what the 12 steps are. And, you know, I, I come from a, a, an well, a very orthodox Christian background, but then evangelical charismatic period in my life before I came to, uh, to AA. And there, you know, I, I think what I, uh, I can read the AA literature and just wonder how much exposure Bill Wilson had to Buddhist practices and other Eastern ideas, because they do, they do appear there. And I think one of the most significant ones is the way he stated the, the first step of recovery was what we conceded to our innermost selves that we were mm -hmm. out like this is the first. And I, I napped up to that originally because by the time I came to AA, uh, I was, I was a couple of years sober. I I was I had already realized that looking outside myself for the answers was 
was codependent and ugly and it was not causing you to get me anywhere but the purpose of the steps is to find the power within so when i read any of that literature i just substitute the word power all the way through because it's not an anthropomorphic definition of this deity idea but but a power a presence and that i can tap into and of course I, you know, Bill Wilson wrote some really strange things on the 12 and 12 that took us back into them or that superstitious uh, um, religious idea. But, you know, still there's some gems that come come forward to there. So yeah. and, and now I my, my first exposure to Buddhism was when I was working on my my second master's degree at our, our, the head of the department and the uh, and and my advisor was a a, a disciple of Thich, of, of Thich Nhat Hanh. He spent <laughs> much time in, in Plum Village and so forth. And you know, so the noble truths and the uh, eightfold path, man. I just said, but boy, I just have to fit them into the twelve steps so that I can get the most out of it. I can have all you know all of the actions that I can take if I want to and willing to, so I can have the benefits of, of the freedom and, and self-esteem and self-worth and so forth and quit comparing myself to other people, quit thinking that, that somebody else is going to do the things that only we can do or I can do. So it, it's been a really refreshing thing. And even when I was a, 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 a charismatic Christian, I referred to myself as a hyphenated Christian because I was already beginning to ingest some of the teachings of the Buddha and really had a concept of the Buddha being within every one of us, not something out there, certainly a historical figure, but someone, something within each, each one of us, much each one of us, which Bill Wilson referred to uh, the great reality deep within <laughs> and later unsuspected inner resource. So that's been the most liberating thing. It's helped me to take power away from all the other things. And I wish I had a question for you, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but there are, you know, I just, you know, but, but the things that you're talking about help to bring me to the point of freedom that I have today. And mm -hmm. of course, that's the, the idea of I'm responsible for my own happiness, joy, and freedom. Yeah. And, uh, but I can't do it alone. I just right. still need the community. Yeah. And, this or something else so yeah thanks so much thanks, oh, it's, it's, it, what is it it's day uh, 16,287 since you reminded me that there's a, a a really interesting pamphlet that uh, Dr. Bob the co-founder uh, he didn't write it but he asked someone to write it it's called Spirit, The Spiritual Dimensions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in it, he says, he talks about different religions, arguing that AA is not a Christian religion. And he says that the, the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path could be a substitute for the 12 steps. <laughs> oh, yes. It's, it's uh, part of what's called the Akron Pamphlets, where he was from Akron, and and um, so it's worth checking out. You can get it from the Akron AA community. Uh, it definitely opened my opened my mind because because there are people who argue that 
Dr. Bob was a, um, that he believed that you had to be Christian to, to um, get sober yeah. or to work the steps, which is pretty ridiculous given the, the language of the steps. Yeah, thanks. Thank yeah, thanks, Jim. So Hugh has his hand up. Hello. Hello, Kevin. How are you? All right. Um, yeah, it was interesting listening to you. My my first sponsor had a lot of books on Buddhism, books by Suzuki. Maybe you're familiar with Suzuki. Yeah. Um, they take books, and he left them all to me. And I moved house, mm. and uh, I left most of the books behind <laughs> me. I was a bit neurotic, and um, he left me a Christian Marty book. She said, "If you read this book, you never read to need another book again." <laughs> and there's a friend of mine, he's not in the fellowship, but he swears by Krishnamurti, and I I think I introduced him to it. And I, I, felt, mm. I didn't think of it at the time, but I felt like saying, you know, Krishnamurti is fine, but the icing on the cake really is Sri Ramana Maharishi, who died in 1950 in Tamil Nadu. And so we talking about pain, and uh, uh, for me, one of my mantras, not to, like, I don't mean physical pain, if somebody... Um, beat me up or something, it doesn't happen much or at all. But um, a saying from the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, the truly wise lament neither for the living nor the dead. And that, that ultimately, of course, I mustn't lament for myself. That's where uh, the suffering comes from. The Buddha talks about it with attachment and craving that creates suffering. Mm-hmm. And um, Buddhism is mentioned in the big book, actually, on page XX along with Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Catholic and Protestant. A bit of everything, really, is what I meant. That's, they're, they're, these, these, these are the religions that are mentioned in the big book. Mm. So um, I was trying to find it. I'm a dictionary there, but I can't, can't find it. It's somewhere. I can't pronounce the word, but it's something like Bodhavishta. It's about an enlightened Buddhist person who delays going to Nirvana to help other suffering people. He, this enlightened person, that was not suffering, of course, has been... Uh, like uh, one of the sayings of the Buddha is, um, is um, enlightenment leads to emancipation. And another, the, the, the essence of, of the spirituality of A, and it's not a Christian fellowship, but it's not anti Christian either, uh, but is, uh, is um, living in the now. And I heard this musician saying in, in the fellowship, live in the now and no people pleasing. Because I was told when I came into A first in 85 that it's a selfish program. And I said, I don't want to be selfish. And then a long time later, I found out in the promises, it says, we will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. And as I heard this author, another author like yourself, in A, in London, over and over again, she used to say, the only authority in A is the big book. And um, uh, another saying the Buddha has is, contentment is the greatest wealth. And another saying, which I, I, gave, I gave a Krishnamurti book, a present to this person, who was on the fringes of a, a writer like yourself on the national newspapers. And on the, I wrote on the front of the book, um, uh, as the, the Buddha, Gautama Siddhartha, the Buddha said, every morning you are reborn and what you do today matters most. And it doesn't mm-hmm. say what you do today only matters. It says what you do today matters most. And that mm-hmm. brings the whole thing into the present tense. If 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 a, right. a moment is too, is too long, if moment is too long for you, try one day at a time, mm-hmm. or, or or moment to moment, 
which is better than moment, moment to moment. That's what Christian Murphy says. Because right. after a moment, what comes? What another moment? But I haven't had a drink or a drug this century. Uh, it took me a while to get the message. And um, um, I do take medication, though. Uh, I, I, this woman drove me home. I finished with this. This woman drove me home from a meeting one night back in the 80s. And she said, we're like crabs without shells. In other words, we're super sensitive. We could do what it takes skin like. We're like crabs without shells. So I, I, I take medication because, because I said I was bipolar. It was drug-induced. And you mentioned Ayuska, if I pronounce the word right. Some people consider that now with avenues to God. Um, in the big book, it says, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. They will always materialize if you work for them. So that's what I latch on to. Instead of resorting to a joint, which I haven't for about 24 years, instead of resorting to a joint, I try and concentrate on sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. They will always mm -hmm. materialize. You know what I mean? So it'll happen. Revelations can come fast or they can take years. But yeah. be patient. Be patient. Thanks very much, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Ah. Well, what do you think, Jim? This feels great. Did you have anything else you wanted to add, Kevin? That was that was fantastic, the whole meeting. Well, I guess I will, since there's a little space, just to say that if, you know, just as with recovery, if we want to if we want a meditation practice that is really transformative, we have to put in the work. And um, I think a lot of times, I mean, this is the the symptom of of addiction that we want immediate results, just as he was talking about sometimes slowly, that we want to be fixed, uh, and that we want magic. And I think sometimes people come to spirituality wanting magic. If I find the special mantra or the special, you know, teacher or the special teaching that then it'll all be fixed. I won't have to do anything. My experience is that it's the, it's the slow and steady. It's the work. It's the showing up one day at a time. It's the sitting down on your cushion or your chair trying to follow your breath, trying to be present when you don't want to do it, when it doesn't seem like anything's happening, when it seems like you're just wasting your time. It's that that brings about the real change and growth. And, um, you know, so I really encourage people to, to pursue a, a, a particularly a meditation practice um, in a serious way. Um, if they want, if they want, uh, what that can, what that can give. Yeah. Oh, that was lovely. That's perfect. I see Tom's got his hand up. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jim. Uh, hi, Kevin. Uh, Hello. When I was about maybe two or three years sober, I joined a Buddhist in Cork. And I think, you know, I really learned it off from it. I learned about being present. I kind of found uh, a connection deep within myself, you know, because I struggle with the higher power. Uh, yeah, I also play music like you. And I, I think there's a huge similarity between, you know, being present and studying music. 
you know, you get really zoned in. But yeah. Uh, yeah. when I used to go to the meetings that, when I was involved in, you know, I used to practice a lot, but then I found myself falling asleep a lot and it used to get very embarrassing, you know. So mm-hmm. I just wonder if you any ideas, you know, about that. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, so one of the things that's important in meditation is developing a, what I'd call an energetic balance between being relaxed but still being awake and alert. And so so typically we go to one extreme or the other to restlessness and, you know, agitation where we can't sit still or our mind won't stop spinning or else we're, you know, falling asleep or getting dull. The mind is getting very dull. And so what when we start to get relaxed, which is kind of what we're trying to do, if we don't have enough energy to balance that, then we fall asleep. So first of all, the fact that you're falling asleep is a good sign in a way because it shows that you're getting relaxed, which is a really important thing. Because when I say relaxed, I also mean getting getting calm and we could say concentrated. So it's a matter then of trying to just have enough energy to stay awake in that calm state. So one thing you can do is simply open your eyes and meditate with your eyes open. Another thing you could do is make sure that you're sitting upright in a really, in a strong posture, because if you're too relaxed, if you're sitting on a couch and you're just sort of laying back on the pillows, you know, you just kind of drift off. So that's why people sit with their legs crossed on a, you know, on a hard cushion to it's part of, partly to keep themselves awake. So sitting upright, sitting with the eyes open, also pick a time of day when you tend to be awake. You know, I can't, I can't meditate much after dinner in the evening. I, I can watch TV and stay awake, but if I meditate, I, I conk out. So I meditate in the morning, sometimes in the, you know, before dinner, but so all of those things, but, fundamentally we just have to this is why i was talking about just keep going like if you just keep practicing if you just keep trying to be mindful eventually that energy will balance itself so if you give up nothing's going to change right fundamental principle of life if you just keep showing up eventually that mindfulness has this quality where it balances energy. If we can just keep, so you can actually be mindful of sleepiness, like, oh, okay, my head feels really heavy. Oh, my eyes feel really, you know, heavy. Um, okay, what, 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 are the, what does it feel like to be sleepy? Oh, it feels like this. It feels like I'm a dreamy. I'm, and you're just being mindful. So that mindfulness, that attention itself will tend to counterbalance the sleepiness because one of the th- causes of sleepiness is boredom or, you know, lack of interest. So, you know, you're meditating on the breath. It's like the breath is kind of boring. You know, <laughs> how can you get interested in your breath so that you'll wake up? We'll start to remember that. If you stop breathing, that's going to be a real problem. <laughs> so maybe that'll make you more interested in your breath. Like, 
oh, every one of these breaths is required for me to stay alive. So what's going on? Let me see what it's like to breathe. This is life right here. I'm observing. Oh, this each breath is full of a whole range of sensations. Each one is unique. So bringing that interest in and engagement can help. But to me, it's really about just stick with it. Because I can go for months where every time I meditate, I fall asleep. But I just I, I nod off, then I pull myself back up because I sit for a period of time, whether I'm falling asleep or not. I've got my clock there. I'm going to sit for 45 minutes, even if I'm falling asleep half the time. I'll just keep snapping awake and just stick with it. Eventually, you get through it. So don't give up. It's my message. <laughs> yeah, but I, like I wasn't talk, so much talking about practicing at home. It was sitting with a group. You know, I used to get embarrassed when I would just nut off, you know. And but that's just, just your ego. Really being, em- being embarrassed is just your ego. Screw yeah. that. Like, that's too bad, you know. Like, <laughs> I've, I've fallen, I've sat in the front of 30 people who are teaching meditation and fallen asleep right in front of them. Uh, you know, it's good. It's good for you to, to, be embarrassed. It's like, oh, look, I'm attached to people thinking that I'm meditating well. You know, okay. You know, that, you know, if, if one of our goals is humility, that's a good way to learn it. You know, oh, okay. I'm, I'm a, I have weaknesses as a meditator. Oh, thanks. I'm still Jeb, of course. Um, you just when you were talking about the balance there between the alert, alert the relaxation and the alertness, um, I'm reminded. You know, I've, I've tried to incorporate a lot of different practices into my twelve step practice, which is the outline for everything I do. And one of the things that I've become aware of is the importance of learning how to activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So that I'm not always operating in the in the uh, sympathetic nervous system, which is that very hyper alert system, and for and it brings about my fright flight, you know, freeze responses. But um, but one of my goals is to you know when I do feel tension rising, is you know, I, today I, I I do the exercises that activate the. Uh, the, the vagus nerve and mm-hmm. I go into that relaxed and comfortable and safe place. But my goal is to find a way that they can function together. And it's sort of the thing about like the left brain and right brain, a brain functioning together, but it's the sympathetic and nervous and, and parasympathetic nervous systems working together. That I felt sort of implied in your approach to, uh, to, to meditation. But the other piece that I think it, it comes across in your share is that you're not judging yourself or condemning yourself for slipping into the sleep sort of thing right. in that right. part of it. Because those relaxations are good good escapes from the stuff that raises the cortisol level and shortens our lives. So that's yeah. just another thing. And so thanks again for everything, Kevin. You bet. So for those who can't get enough of Kevin, 
tomorrow morning at the same time, I'm going to be on the Buddhist Recovery Network <laughs> Academy. So I put that link in the, uh, uh, and I'm going to talk about long enduring mind, whatever that means. I'll discover tomorrow morning. Beautiful. Thank you very much, Kevin, for being here and sharing today and, and sharing a little bit about your your journey with us and your thoughts and everyone for participating and uh, everyone for, for being here. It was, it was